This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This week, we're going to be a little more personal with our topic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people realize when they first get into, but as time goes by they kind of lose perspective and become that jaded vendor persona. So what we're talking about is mm-hmm. basically why we do this. Yeah. What got us into vending in the first place, what we find rewarding about it. Uh, you know, Reptar is going to go from the vendor perspective, I'm going to go from the LGS perspective. And this was kind of prompted by James, uh, on Twitter had a conversation where basically someone said something about, you know, my LGS is doing this wrong. And it started on a long conversation with a back and forth about what it takes to own an LGS and how it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same as being a vendor, as we've kind of covered before, it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. And oh, I yeah. think it's important to kind of keep perspective on what helps us enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we're doing. So okay. let's get started. Okay. Um, we kind of broke it down into um, two bullet points. You know, what drew us to our uh, respective roles uh, in the industry? And then, uh, like, what are the kind of pros or cons, like the, the draw to kind of keeping with it? And uh, I, I don't have any LGS experience in regards to working at or for an LGS. I've only worked for a large vendor. Um, did not actually open the LGS I thought I was going to this year. Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> that was Got the happiest. On that one. Yeah, that was the happiest accident ever. Um, <laughs> but the the draw to the vendor thing was really kind of the intrigue around the world as a whole. Uh, growing up, I didn't have access to dedicated card shops. Uh, we talked about this before. It was just sports card stores that had magic, maybe singles here and there. Uh, yeah. This store was located in a town that was basically just built around a number of schools, and so it catered to whatever card games were coming out. So I, I bought my Pokemon and my Magic at the same store, singles and, and packs. And that, that was my experience. Once I moved to college and found out there was more beyond just FNM. I started traveling and I got to see vendors in New England and I got to see some of the heavy hitters back in the day. Um, there, uh, it gaming etc. is up there. They're part of the uh, etc. brand. Uh, Andy Stokes original uh, game store was up there. Rob Doherty. Uh, ran a store up there where a number of pros came out of the darwin castle uh came out of there uh eventually i found out about uh what people term togit in new jersey the only game in town in somerville that's where osep uh uh patrick sullivan um aj i can't remember his his name he's an l2 now uh used to be a storm aficionado wrote about it for star city came out of there Uh, And the kind of mystique that was a game store uh, and the the traveling game store and the vendor. And eventually playing around the area, started actually playing in real game stores. And one of my friends moved into 
a position with a large vendor and was doing uh, a regionals up here. And I just straight shot. I was like, yo, can I help? What do you have? And he's like, yeah, we could use a sales associate and it's cheaper to just have somebody drive the three hours to yeah. Boston than it will be to fly somebody in. So come on down. You'll just sell. I was like, all right, fine, cool. And that was kind of it. And I learned a lot in that first uh, regionals. I think it was shortly after a new Frexia release. So there was a lot of uh, side event cracking packs and selling cards. And we had a really interesting conversation about uh, what the vendor was and the community that ca that came with that I, I learned about in that experience. So at, at first it was just the that draw of a of traveling retail experience and how you are trying to be better than everybody else in the room in regards, regards to uh, pricing on the buy and sell in terms of customer service, which is huge. Again, on the buy and sell, uh, presentation of uh, yourself, uh, your product, representation of the brand, etc. And it just it was super interesting because it was just something I'd never grown accustomed to and I'd been playing this game for years and it just felt like, well, I keep playing it forever. This is something I'm interested in as well. I wonder if there's also a, um, a future in you know, moving into an organization, and lo, I did. But that was that was kind of it initially. Uh, it was, you know, it was pretty similar to me. Uh, you know, I growing up in St. Louis, same deal. Back then, you didn't have dedicated magic shops. Uh, you had your sports card or your hobby town, and that was where you had F and M. I was kind of fortunate in that, being from St. Louis, eventually there came to be a name in magic that towered over every other name, uh, being Ogre. Yep. from St. Louis, had his store, walked in one day and felt like, man, this is great. Uh, without getting into details about the shady underbelly of when it first started, but uh, the glory days, so to speak, it felt like a family kind of, you know, it was mm -hmm. a lot of people that shared this passion for the game. There was a large vintage community there, uh, courtesy of Roman, creator of Ubastacks the archetype way back in the day in vintage and it felt like here was this thing that i'd liked and loved for so long and was such a huge part of my life and all of a sudden man there's these people that are just as passionate mm -hmm. and it was like buying into that community yes and recognizing that this is a place where i belong i feel welcome and kind of recognizing because at the time I hadn't started like actually grinding to try to be on the GP or pro tour circuit. So that was when I first recognized I could walk into a room where an event like this is happening and immediately have something in common with 90% of the people in that room. And that it was a conversation I could have with no words yeah. just by pointing cards at, you know, here's my murderous writer, you know, getting your Vivian or something. And you can communicate wordlessly like that. And recognizing that was kind of what drew me into the LGS scene. And eventually, similarly, I was like, hey, you, you need something? And they said, yeah, we need someone to pick bulk. And that was how I started, as oh, a bulk picker. Always the worthwhile Way, role. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly, yes. Um, and that, that was kind of what got me into it to begin yeah. with, was just the desire to be a part of that community. I think it's really important to note, it's it's something I have under here, under the draws as well, is uh, kind of learning what the events are like behind the scenes, and eventually you learn that 
you can see you'll find the same people at all the events especially from the vendor perspective um yep it was a little more obvious before than it was now when you had the same vendor showing up all the time um i love that cfb was looking to bring in uh new blood even if it was at the cost of like the monetary cost of boots and yeah also bringing in local stores that don't have the opportunity to by reducing their cost because everybody else is paying a little more and giving yeah. people that opportunity to kind of you know join the club and i didn't realize that was a thing until i'd been uh vending magic events for maybe a year or two um yeah at that point in time for the the vendors that were on the gp circuit it you're there as a group of three to six it's very easy to learn people's names and you just kind of float into the conversation and you know become you know a member of i'm going to use the word club and that's kind of incorrect family isn't correct either family doesn't it's... often go to a strip club but they're well, in that case make of they it, do yeah. make of it what you will look it was yeah somebody had a birthday and you went to red steakhouse and a and a yeah. strip joint in miami what a, you can't complain. It's, it's like a hybrid of the two yeah. because you have this like shared bonded experience over, you know, just destroying people at the vendor booth all weekend. But you also, you know, you travel together, you work together for 12 hours a day for four days a week. Oh, yeah. Multiple times. So and, it, it is. It becomes like a work family. Yeah. And I'm super happy to represent any company that uh, offers to contract Same. me and uh i've been stopped a number of times in airports asking like what the company i did work for because i will wear any hoodie or any yeah. t-shirt that i'm given part of my contract for the first time i work with a company is that if you have a hoodie it will be there for me on site yeah like it because i i love that part of it the, the camaraderie and i think that goes kind of unspoken in, in the industry because nobody really you know talks about it there are a lot of lone wolves not a lot of uh larger vendors act, you know do something like this so you miss out on that and and what happens behind the scenes so yeah i'm glad you did bring that up and it's it's so that was you know that was how i started in it and when i really got into it was actually similar through ogres uh took a break from magic came back helped ogre run ogres for a brief period uh after theft went down there everyone pretty much scattered from it because they realized wait this might not be the best idea yep. uh so take a break and i came back and i actually opened up Moonbase uh with one of the people who was managing ogres prior to me taking it over and that was when it kind of finally became like look i want to be 100% responsible for building and cultivating this community. Yep. I want it to be a welcoming place. I want to have that camaraderie. I want to see the fruits of my labor become this great thing. And I think something a lot of people recognize as that desire. What a lot of people don't recognize, I think, when they get into the industry, and this is something that James touched on in his, treat, in his tweets, uh, is how much work that takes oh, yeah. and that you're working 60 70 hour weeks and when you first start and you're doing it for no extra pay because it's what you have to do mm -hmm. to do this thing you love oh absolutely and that that does take a toll yeah because you have less time for your friends for your family for your loved ones whatever 
And I think a lot of people, when they look at their LGS, they may see, you know, all of these shiny lights and they don't necessarily see the work that goes into it. And think about this. I think you're an LGS and you're selling on an online platform. At some point during the day, somebody's got to start pulling orders from the day previous. Does that happen during the next day, during business hours, and now you've got an employee tied up that can't help a customer? Or do they have to do it before the store opens? This is just one of those decisions where you have to figure out what is your actual operating hours internally and then for the public. Yeah, and that's... That adds up. That's kind of... Yeah, it it does. And that's part of what has kept me in the industry, although I've taken a step back from the LGS side, uh, is the toll in those hours. And it's something that I think everyone eventually... At the vendor level, at whatever, you have to find your happy medium between the two. Oh, yeah. And the reason I've kept with it is, as many pros have even touched on, is less magic, more the gathering. More gathering. And not the greatest Magic the Gathering-themed hip-hop group of all time, fronted by one oh, Patrick no. Chapin, but the collective grouping <laughs> and that community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, part of it is, and I think probably for you as well when you get involved in the vendor lifestyle you know especially coming from st louis and seeing ogre if you needed something he was who you went to Mm -hmm. every single time you need something ogre has it guaranteed and there was always something really cool about being that guy yep yeah and that was what drew me into it as well was seeing like well you know if anybody needs something this is the place they go Mm -hmm. they want to play with the best players this is the place they go they want the best selection and best prices. That's where they go. Yep. And there is a little bit of, you know, the desire to like, all right, I'm going to travel to a show and I still do it. I'll tell people, hey, I'm going to this event. Give me a list of cards you need. I'll come back with them. We'll work out a deal. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, every vendor knows, every vendor does, especially the freelance guys like yep. you and I. I come in, I'm like, look, here's the list of stuff my locals are looking for. I'll take payment in these cards fine and it's it's such a cool feeling to be able to provide that service yeah to people and that's part of what has kept me further into the industry mm-hmm. is the desire and willingness to be that guy oh yeah no it, it's nice and that's kind of what i've always wanted to do at the vendor at the vendor level you know uh online is online that's one thing um targeting specifically for events and having the right cards for events is always something that i've wanted to be able to do better or more of given the opportunity because that in and of itself is a skill set yeah uh was it not niagara there was another legacy gp was it SeaTac after niagara yeah i i got an email from a vendor from their magic specialist for the show and they were they just said what is legacy right now and yeah. I wrote back a three-page article. And yeah. I knew the question was, what do I bring? Not just what was legacy. So I just went down, like, this is the meta. This is what people are, are like, to play the deck that day. These is, this is what you're going to want to bring. Yeah. yeah. Quantity-wise, you know, up to you. And then this is what uh, people are going to be playing against that. I would focus here as well. And then, you know, drifting down. And... I, I like that role, but you know, s- similar to you, like just being able to say, okay, we're going to this event. 
this is what we know we have to bring, do it. The only time that it, it absolutely scrambles my brain is a limited event. It's like, why do you bring to a limited event? Fuck it. EDH. Yeah, exactly. And, EDH. and like some format staples. And, and if you, even if you want to call like fetches and duels format staples, shocks, etc., they're still EDH cards at their heart. So it's just like, mm, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and I think that's also kind of what keeps me in it as well is uh, a part of the customer service aspect. And traveling around and talking to people and learning about how how they play and enjoy the game and working with somebody at the booth and giving them uh, kind of a tailored experience, but also learning a little bit more about the game and how people see it themselves is something that keeps me interested in, you know, coming back and being a vendor. It's not just seeing the people I know. It's not just working insane hours or being able to go to some of these events and have a blast. It is being able to work with people all around the country and learn more about them. In Vegas, I learned about a store in Florida and how yeah. it crushed the competition. Like, that's that's that, the kind of stuff that I enjoy. And it's, you know, the something I think a lot of players don't necessarily recognize either is, and vendors too, honestly, mm -hmm. uh, the appreciation for, like, the quiet moments after the day's done when you're just sitting around a table with a bunch of yes. vendors from the same booth different booths whatever and you're just all exhausted oh yeah none of you want to talk about magic so all you do is just shit on each other for an entire dinner yep this <laughs> and there's it's so cathartic it really is uh the first grand prix because it was still a grand prix i went to uh when i started dating my now wife She'd asked me prior, like, what do you do at these events as a vendor? And I explained it, and she was like, okay, sure, I guess. And she played the game, and she'd seen me vend locally. But what I sent her was the bill from the steakhouse that we went to uh, on the aforementioned trip that didn't include the alcohol. That was on a separate tab. Uh, two different people wanted a credit card. They pay for alcohol, yeah. Well, no, no, they just wanted a credit card game, different things, because started, uh, um, they started drinking at the bar because there was a wait. So Yeah. And it was like a $1,400 tab. And I yep. just sent a photo of that, and I said, this is what we do. <laughs> yeah. We eat and we shit on each other, like you said, and that's it. That is that is most nights at the end, end of uh, an event. Saturday, uh, specifically, is usually when it happens. That's when you have your big meal, because Sunday's kind of a coast day. Yeah, you can go in late, you're leaving early, you're not doing a whole lot. Yeah. So, you, that's... Generally yeah. speaking, every vendor in the room knows exactly what Sunday is going to be because it's exactly the same as every other Sunday at every other event. All you have to do is prepare yourself for the people who uh, want to haggle because they know everybody is there to haggle and yeah. ensure that you either have your signage out that you will be uh, cutting deals or not and then fucking pack it up when you see fit. Yeah. Sunday's super easy. Um, but yeah, it's that that camaraderie that that you know bond that you get one of the interesting things that not a lot of people get to see even from an lgs perspective uh, as a vendor is when you get out to events that aren't magic related i've mentioned yeah. going to anime conventions and um other things like that packs uh, here and there um i haven't gone to nycc as a vendor yet i'm trying 
I've done NYCC, SDCC, and Gen Con, and I can oh. honestly say Gen Con is the oh. worst yeah, slash Gen- best. Gen Con and SDCC kind of don't fall into these paradigms because there's just so many fucking people there. NYC yeah. is such a large uh, city, so it's easy to spread out, even if you want to get into Jersey. But like these days start really late compared to uh, a, a Magic Fest and end yeah. really early in comparison really early. to a Magic Fest. So instead of work, you might work four or five days in a row, but you're working human hours. You're working six to eight hours, you know, something you've been tempered with, not 13 for three in a row or more because you were yeah. also there on Thursday setting up your entire booth. Comic-Cons, etc., all have teams that will put your booth together for you as long as you give them the planograms if you need it. And yeah. like all your hardware and stuff, if you're bringing a, a big display or whatever, and you just roll your vehicle right up to your booth, dump everything out, pack it back in the same way, and you just you leave everything there because the cons have security. Everything yep. stays. Nothing comes with you aside from your cash box and then you know whatever else you want to bring with you. And then you just you leave at like six. Yeah. That's and great. it's yeah, and you just get to really enjoy your evening. It's the only time I've ever left an event, had dinner, and just gone swimming afterwards. Yeah. Was um, Asen in Chicago. A sounds great. Oh, it was amazing, and even waiting with the entire rest of the uh, the con to get uh, what is it, Giordano's Pizza. We sat in the parking lot, running our sales numbers, just doing busy work while we were waiting for our order. Got yeah. it. Ate back at the hotel and then went swimming. Like that's the kind of stuff not a lot of other vendors get to experience because they don't do these other cons. But that's one of the reasons why I co- I keep contracting with a handful of people that I do is because they don't they do more than just. Uh, magic fests they do other types of events and those are also super interesting to learn about as well and to see what's going on and kind of see how they operate um i didn't know if the final fantasy card game had an actual player following i thought it was just like pokemon for the most part which is by yeah uh, by look only and that kind of stuff is super duper interesting um the degenerates who love to gamble on things like revised packs they show up. I'm so mad that I was turned down to flip it or rip it a sealed legends pack at Vegas the year that we both went. Mm-hmm. So mad. Did uh... Oh, that's right. Because you you wanted to do it on live stream, didn't you? With uh, mm, Graded. With Russo. Yeah. 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 Did Hatsa Oops. stop him? Or did no? He... he wouldn't do it. Oh, that's okay. Funny. Yeah. Because Bruce. Uh... Hatsa... Hatsa loves that stuff. Are you kidding? I know. That's why I thought, like, I was like, if you asked Hatsa, he would have definitely said yes, but I feel like Bruso would have finished your sentence. <laughs> yeah. Like. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I, that's, that's the stuff I love. I mean, we used to bet on stuff in the room. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and like, because that's what you do to pass the time when you're slow. I, I don't and. know if you can tell a story like this or not, so I'll leave out names and vendors, but if you ever hear a quarter go flying across the room and it sounds like it landed at a vendor booth, that is one vendor betting another vendor heads or tails for 50s. Yep. That it is. That That's uh, <laughs> pretty great. Yeah. Uh, I've put up a bet with somebody before about the first deck they would get be sold in full at a modern GP at round five yeah. because that's usually like the round. I uh, and you know that's so that's that's what's kept us in it. Yeah. Uh, for me, as 
some of you may may not know, uh, I left Moonbase, and I started doing strictly the GP vendor thing. Mm-hmm. So why leave the LGS this you know Grail project that I kind of you know fell in love with and became my drive in life, and that's kind of you know what I touched on and what you know James touched on in his tweets is it wears on you because it does take a lot out because mm-hmm. you have those long hours because it takes a special kind of person to run that LGS as like effectively a sole proprietorship mm-hmm. where you may have a few employees but you know realistically when stuff really gets bad you're going to be the one that has to go in mm-hmm. because they can't you pay them hourly you don't want to pay them overtime and you also don't want to put too much work on their plates because you're the owner and it should fall on you and eventually it just got to be too much and i was like you know what this is this is it i found the balance in being a vendor and that's just what i want to do that's where i'm headed that's where i'm going and that's that's my thing yep and that's basically where i'm at now that's why you can find me at boost at star cities and gps if they ever happen again who knows yeah i'll tell you i don't i don't think i would have survived at uh, an lgs in any capacity back when i started becoming a vendor uh the idea of the split uh for the the lgs they were that we were thinking of uh is still appealing for different reasons but i don't think i'd be able to work at, yeah. Uh, any anywhere else where we weren't in full control of of everything down to you know precise location, but being a vendor and trip and doing these uh, trips has been a lot easier than anything else. But if I needed to do back to backs for a month or two, that would be the killer. That, that's rough. That's when you generally see like some haggard vendors. I don't know how uh, Alex from CFB does it as often as he does. Um, yeah, Sasso, that dude's a machine. Yeah. yeah, these guys are out there at almost every CFB or every other CFB event or were you know when they were happening, and that's kind of the I don't want to call it the, the dark side or the downside, but that's really what it is. Is you have three or four. Uh, probably three 13 hour days and a fourth uh three or four hour day and that's to get the the booth set up so that doesn't so that's thursday to sunday and that gives you monday to wednesday to fly back to where you were and then out again so with those few days you i don't even i've never asked alex i've gone out to dinner with him a bunch i don't know what he does in between whether he stays in one location or he flies to the next but going back home for three days is not an option uh, yeah one of the it's going to sound weird to say this, but it's kind of a blessing and a curse where Troll and Toad is located in uh, southeastern Kentucky. It's an hour yeah. to any airport, but they have the ability to drive five hours to Chicago, uh, I think three or four down into Texas. Orlando is eight. They fly to yeah. Cali. Like, whatever uh, latitude they're on within the U.S. is great for that kind of travel, so it makes it a lot more palatable as opposed to going from coast to coast that yeah that's a killer like uh, for you it might be a little easy as well if you cut up cut out the east coast and say yeah you went a couple hours over you can get chicago in the 
Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, Louv, you know, yeah. Tennessee, any of the Midwest spots are easy to get to. And it's a, you know, we have an airport here that goes pretty much anywhere. So yeah. that kind of makes it easier. Exactly. But still... So you should be able to direct into uh, Orlando, New York City, Baltimore, Boston, yeah. anywhere on the East Coast, there would be a worthwhile event. You can just direct yep. shot into. Yeah. Like, Which helps. That. If I had to do that, that might push me out of uh, being a vendor. When I was working with, with Face, despite the fact that I did the second half of the year with them, this was once a month. So it was yeah. super easy to handle uh, all those days off and all, all that flying and all that travel. So it just it didn't really affect me at all being gone for four days or whatever and then coming back because I had the rest of the month to be back home and actually work. When you're home and you get to sleep in your own bed maybe two nights a week before you're out again, that does wear as well. That's kind of the downside to being a full-time uh, sales or uh, sales associate buyer, or buyer. GP, whatever, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, for somebody like Bernie, who runs Moose, he's been at every GP almost for the last how many years as well. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, and they... You know, there's a lot of, like, Tails, Moose. They do, like, a three-on, two-off rotation. Mm -hmm. So you're still traveling for a few weeks consecutively, but it's not like you have a week off and then you're back. You yeah. get two to three weeks off and then, all right, rest up and try to rotate staff. That's why on some of the really big booths like Tails, you'll see three or four people that are there at every booth, but the other five or six rotate in and out. Yep. Yeah. Because it takes a very special person to be able to travel that much. And part of, you know, sticking with it is being that type of person. And a lot of times it's the owners. Mm -hmm. They want to be there. They want to represent the brand as they should. Yeah. Uh, but that's why you get that rotation a lot of times mm -hmm. of people off and on. Yeah. So. Also, there's a there's a lot of cleanup that goes with a GP vendor. And I don't mean like the booth wise. I mean, actually taking care of business in regards to your finances. Everything yeah. needs to be sorted, priced, and possibly entered into the system before it either comes back with you or gets mailed out if you're going to the next GP and you're just sending your buy somewhere else. Or you're yeah. sending them home with somebody and you're getting new crew for the next event. So there's still, there's always work to be done while you're out there uh, at, a, at a GP and you know, Magic Fest and even at um, a con. You just have more time to do it when you're at an anime con and, the, and all those hours. Because yeah. you're go you're, you'll be at the event sometime between 9 and 10 a.m. because doors don't open until 10 or 11 a.m. That that means you have up until like 1 a.m. to get every to eat, relax, and get this stuff done and set up for the next day. At a Magic Fest, you're, you're up at 6 a.m. to be there at 7 a.m. because doors are whatever, 8, and then you're not out there until the last tables are done, which means you then have to find... Nine. Yeah, you have to find some place to eat. Hopefully it's open. That generally takes an hour or two. And it's not in Madison. Yeah. So at that point, it's close to midnight, and you have six hours to get all that all that work done while you're at the event. Yeah. It doesn't work out that well. Sunday some can be a little bit better, like I said, because day, day ends early, but there's still that kind of cleanup that needs to be done. And that's the work that really grinds, and like that, that, that I couldn't do. That, that would be... Yeah. That's that's the biggest con. It would be the constant travel and the work that comes with it. I could do like two a month, I think. Well, and that's why you'll see vendors like Cool Stuff and Mini pack up early on Sunday. Yep. That's their warehouse employees. So they're going back to work on Monday. Yep. So, you know, when I would be there and we'd 
leave a GP at like two or three, sure, you know, everyone's like, oh, look at them, they're missing out on all the sales, and then the other half is like, God, I wish I could go home right now. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we get home, we drive everything back to the store, we clock out, and then we have to be back at work the next morning. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing of like that constant grind. Mm -hmm. And some people find that incredibly rewarding, and I applaud them because I could not possibly ever do that. Oh, yeah, it is. It is difficult. But it's not to say that it, you know, it's not all bad. It's not all good either. No. It's, it's something you have to take in, in, in stride. And, you know, we, we do this for similar reasons, it seems. So yeah. there's definitely, you know, things to look out for here. And don't be dissuaded if you were, you know, thinking about this. You know, if you're yeah. either at the LGS level, you just, that's, you know, the job for you, or you want to work for a vendor with a warehouse and look to be uh, a sales associate, a buyer, a specialist, you know, what have you, and actually look to travel. You know, the, yeah. it, is, it is rewarding, it is doable, and oftentimes it is uh, a little bit more about who you know than what you know, but it is uh, eminently attainable if it's something you're interested in. Yeah. Uh, picks? Absolutely. You got anything else? No, Sweet. no, I'm good. I'm good for picks. All right. You want me to go first? I'll go. All right. So my pick this week is Showcase Murderous Rider. My, what an odd choice. Well, it's just coming off an all-time low. The Showcase cards from Throne are honestly, in my opinion, the best alternate art, alternate frame, whatever special stupid thing they're doing with every set now is. Uh, I've kind of been on a run of these lately, as you may have learned as well. It's also one of the premier pieces of removal in standard for a while now it's currently not seeing a whole lot of play but what is seeing a lot of play is planeswalkers and really efficient dudes Mm -hmm. this does a decent job of answering both granted at three mana you could play rotting registrar and be very aggressive i think however there's an opportunity for a more mid-range style deck in gruel probably because you can't play standard right now and not play green Uh, Or maybe Jund, just not Jund's Sacrifice. But I think this card is really well positioned in the standard meta. Modern meta, eh. Legacy meta, eh. I also think it is a really good recurrable effect to have. Yes. Especially in something like EDH, where there's problem creatures and problem planeswalkers. This solves both, and it goes back into your library once it dies. And I think that this art is also one of the better arts of all of the showcase cards, not just thrown. So I think at about 250 yes. you can probably pick it up and trade for a dollar to two. Great. I think within the next eight months to a year, this card easily reaches a $5 buy list. Uh, granted, there were a lot of print issues with thrown because of the war sheets and everything else, so print run may be a little off. Mm-hmm. But... I think this is, especially as Throne is concerned, the most well-positioned of all of these showcase cards. And I think that it is the least likely to be banned forever, like everything else from that set, or the last five years of Magic. Yeah. Awful. Right. Uh, I, I think it's a really opportune time as well because right now there is such little attention on paper magic so you've probably got some lgs's that are sitting on these in their cases that have been there 
from when it was the best card in standard yeah or in their binders whatever they have and i think going in and trading in something like I, there's people paying 50 cents on modern horizon snowlands it's great if you can get that in lgs dump them for something like this uh, I don't think, unless you're moving in mass on TCG player, there's any way that that is more liquid than something like a Murderous Rider. Mm. So I just think it's well-positioned, and once Modern slows down, which I hope it does, because I hope they start paying attention to anything but Arena again. I'm holding my breath on that one. I think Murderous Rider is going to be well-positioned there again as well. Uh, agreed. Uh, I've actually watched the majority of the Star City qualifier. Uh, this past weekend and uh, the power couple of Todd Anderson and Ryan Overturf actually talked about the power couple of Murder's Rider and Scavenging Ooze in both Standard and Pioneer uh, and there is the green-black mid-range deck that already uh, exists in Pioneer we covered this a, a while back with a couple of our picks as well and it didn't have Scavenging Ooze before now we get Scavenging Ooze to help with a bit of the uh, graveyard recursion, just become an efficient threat all the way up the curve from turn two through turn six, what have you. And Murderous Rider is already in the deck and slots in perfectly. And we can see that it's already seeing play. If you were to take a look at like MTG meta or um, MTG decks, you can see that it is firing off in Pioneer. Generally yeah. in right now, it looks like Jund and Mono Black for the most part in Pioneer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mono Yep. But it is definitely a card that has the ability to withstand the test of time in Pioneer, and between now and when this rotates in Fall 2021, the ability to actually pick up and become not more than a role player. Yeah. Once we lose Wilderness Reclamation and Crasis and some of the Vivians that we have. We should see a more mid-range deck kind of form. You mentioned Gruul. It is playable. Uh, Patrick Sullivan Patrick Sullivan has been championing uh, that. Yeah. You don't need the Ember Cleaves to really win. You can actually play a fairly decent mid-range deck and pick up some games when you're not just facing down the same two or three decks the entire time. So yeah. Murderous Rider as a card is definitely a, a great pickup. And the Showcase version being right now, according to stocks at the same almost the same price as the uh, set version it just seems like the easy call because it is the specialized version of the card in foil or not yeah and i, I think this is a a, a card that'll that'll last it did just take an uptick which is nice so you can just see coming out of the, the this weekend where it was talked about that we're going to be heading it hopefully into a positive yeah. trend for this card so any kind of investment you could make in this you'll see dividends on for myself, I am going with an oldie but a goodie in Shimmer Mirror. This is a card from Mirrodin Besieged that has flash and gives all your artifacts flash. It's a, a card I've been watching for a little bit now, I think close to a month because it had a reprint in Commander 2016 that kind of that made a rope for a, a, lo a lot longer than it needed to, if you saw the, yeah. if you see the price guide. But it's finally started to pick back up over the last couple of weeks, which is really nice. The market on it is... It looks like people are telling you about $3, which is fair. Uh, CK was 
buying it for about 250 last week when I mentioned this and I want to bring up the buy price real quick because it went up between when I mentioned it in our discord and when I looked again they're buying 24 for the same price okay so it's held over the weekend yeah but everything else has got it has gone up from last week to this week the interesting thing is on rec if you kind of skip past the top commanders here and you just look at the um, the high synergy cards you kind of see a tail of a card that basically fits in every artifact strategy ever in edh looking at the generals is a little misleading because most of them are combo based generals with a handful yep. of aggro and it's not necessarily the full picture so if you were to believe that, then you would think this is a very niche card because the artifact combo decks are really oppressive. If you're looking at things like Memnarch or uh, Karn, Silver Golem, Emery, Psymaster, Thopterus, decks that can just yeah. go. Tucked away, however, are Jorkadine and uh, Traxos, Hope of Gearapur, these really aggressive generals. So this card spans the gamut. And it's a unique effect in uh, what we like to term mono-brown lists, where... Yeah. It doesn't just work like Winding Canyons. It is the artifact equivalent of Alchemist's Refuge, where it gives essentially everything in your deck the ability to be played at the end of your opponent's turn, so you can kind of untap and win there without exposing yourself too much when you pass the turn. This is the kind of card I also like with Unwinding uh, Clock. I also like... Oh. Yep. Okay. It's also much better than a similar effect in Vidalcan Orrery, and that it is asymmetrical. Yeah. Uh, especially, as you mentioned, with Unwinding Clock, you can use artifact-based draw to continually flood the board. Yes. Uh, for people that don't know Unwinding Clock, I'll bring it up real quick on Rec. Uh, it is effectively Seedborn Muse for artifacts. It costs four, and it just untaps all artifacts you control. At all of them, just like Seedborn Muse. So you get all your mana, all your draw effects, everything again. So when all your all your artifacts have flash, and you can continue to just draw through your deck with Temple Bell, etc. Yeah, this just helps you you power out. And as they as Watsi continues to print more cards that work better with artifacts, again, this is one of those cards that we expect to just kind of rise up and take over over time. Sculpting Steel has a real price, not just because it was printed and like two sets that barely had print runs in Mirrodin and Tenth, but because it goes in every artifact that can copy everything from Howling Mine and Font of Mythos to, like, big dumb things like um, Darksteel uh, Dark Reactor or Darksteel Forge and just give yourself a redundant copy, a Chromos Memorial, what have you. Yeah. We're going to see more cards that work with artifacts, and so this is going to be one of those things that's just going to continue to tick up. Obviously, with a Commander reprint, we could see another reprint either in a Master set or if we go back again to Mirrodin, like, is the uh, the rumor. And we just got a mirror in Core 2021. It was, like, a mana-making mirror. So, reprint equity on this is a little higher than some of my other picks, but between now and... <clears throat> I, we should get the next set of sets in late Q4. Yep. We'll know where we're headed in the next year. If 
if you've moved in between now and then and they do not announce a return to Mirrodin, then I would absolutely be fine holding onto this card for at least another yeah. year and then ducking out because there's no way this can't hit tor heads towards five as they keep printing cards that work with artifacts and this continues to track on its upward traje trajectory that we finally started to see. And it's... Slight aside, I really hope they don't go back to Mirrodin because every time they go to Mirrodin, magic dies. Anyways, a little bit. Uh, I... I agree. I think that the biggest spot probably is if we go back to Mirrodin, because we just had an Artifacts Matter commander. Mm -hmm. That's not a theme they visit every year. No. They do it every two <clears throat> to three years. Correct. So if we're not doing a return to return to Mirrodin, yeah, we're at return to return now. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, Mirrodin existed, then we besieged it, and then we would have yeah. to return to the war-torn land that we left. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that reprint wise i'd probably be a little bit more comfortable going in quantity on this card than i think a lot of people would because i don't think well i mean who knows what the way toy releases are going now under the magic banner but i wouldn't see us without a return to mirrored and getting something like this and even if it does get reprinted as you mentioned it slides into that really nice broad spectrum edh card where it has long-term appeal it's mm -hmm. not the type of thing that's going to just bottom out and never recover. Exactly. It'll bottom out for a little bit, but it'll recover. Mm -hmm. Because especially Mono Brown EDH is something that most people I have known have tried to experiment with at some point. Be it Kozilek, be it Karn, be it Nulamog, be it whatever. It's something that people like to do is have an artifact theme. Yes. When you looked at all those commanders, it runs the gamut of super heavy combo centric to just dirtily to aggressive. And I think that that gives it a lot more appeal that might be a little bit more reprint proof. Mm -hmm. Even if I would, uh, I wouldn't be worried too much with a reprint because I think that brings more eyes to the card and that just pushes off the, this, then that we, then we ascribe to the idea of there are no bad specs. It just takes longer. Yeah, And I'm okay with that, because I do think this card suffers from that effect. It's just like, there are a number of slivers tucked away in Onslaught block that people don't remember that are outstanding and have no value compared to others. Because they're just tucked away in this time capsule. And they Balfour. didn't get... They didn't get... Uh, Crypt Sliver. They, yeah. uh, they didn't get reprinted in the Slivers uh, dual deck. They didn't get a reprint in any of the core sets, and they weren't reprinted in Modern Rise, so they just kind of hide below water. And, yep. you know, even if they resurface in time, once there are those additional eyes on them, it you'll be fine. It will take off again, despite, you know, the influx of new quantity. You'll be... Yeah. You'll be good. Because, like I said, I think this card just suffers from uh, people... The lack of visibility on this card... And kind of an unwillingness to kind of go all in on it. Yeah. That's what I got for this week, I believe. That's all I got, too. All right. So that's going to be it for this week. We will be back next week with something, for sure, definitely. Topics, yes. Topics <laughs> and picks, that we're here. that's what we're here for. And some jokes. It's kind of, kind of, kind of a struggle because it's magic is kind of at a lull right now. Yeah, so. uh, the best thing that happened to me magic related this week was when somebody on our Twitter timeline mentioned Freakazoid, and that was really it. 
Yeah. That's what got me going this week. Um, Great. Or, uh, uh, no, somebody dug up, like, the press release for the 93 or 94, uh, not announcement, but, like, Gen Con exhibition for the Magic Demo. That was pretty dope. Um, Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, but aside from that... Baron Sanger, the original art, is on sale for the first time ever. Yes. That is a $30,000 piece at least. Yeah, we so. are expecting some big numbers on that. Definitely. Uh, yeah, Pete Venters is putting it up himself instead of going through... Uh, well, I think he's having Mark handle it, actually. Okay, Mark Antaro. Yeah. yeah, that makes yeah. sense. He, Mark is, like, the guy. So, yeah. Yeah, that'll be interesting to follow if you've seen it. It's all over the place. Uh, It's been on Twitter, Facebook. I'm sure Instagram, because Pete Venters is an artist, and thus every artist has one. Uh, But uh, as has been commonplace the last couple of weeks, we are in that magic lull, and we we will pump out information as we get it, either what we're seeing in Standard from the Star City stuff, which is firing all the time. Thankfully, we finally have deck lists coming through from events that matter besides Moto FNMs. So... There's always that to to take interest in, and then EDH trends as always. But you know, we are MTG Cabalcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Patreon, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. I am at Halt. I am Reptar on Twitter. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week. <laughs>